So our theme for the year for 2023 is citizens of the kingdom, ambassadors of the king. That's what we are. If you are in Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, then you are above all other things that you may be. You are a citizen of the kingdom of our Savior and Lord. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you are also meant to be an ambassador of the king of that kingdom. That's what you are. In all of the different identities that we all have and we all look to and we all are drawn to, and there are many, that is to be, those two things are to be the the foremost aspects of our identities. It's to be what drives us and defines us. It's to be what saturates every part of our life. Does anybody know what this is over here in this corner? Christian flag, right. And that represents who? Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And it represents what? His kingdom, which we are to be more devoted to, which should have most of our allegiance, more than any other thing. We should be more devoted to, and and our allegiance should rest in the king of that kingdom more than any other country or flag or government or political system. That is where our identity should lie and our devotion should rest. And it should permeate every aspect of our being, of our life. That should drive our purpose. That should define our identity. Citizens of the kingdom ambassadors of the king. That's what we are. That's what we are called to be. That's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. It's what I want for us. That this year, more than any other year, we would be defined by those things. That we would be driven by those things above all else. In Christ's kingdom, it's definitely an upside-down kingdom. It's totally upside down compared with the world and the way it works. When you compare the way the world does things, when you compare the way the world goes about things, and you compare that with Christ's kingdom, with his agenda, with his way of doing things, it looks completely upside down. But it's only when you compare it against the world that it looks upside down. It's actually right side up and everything else is upside down. I think you can agree with that. If you look at the world, the way the world works, you compare that with the way the kingdom functions, which one is actually right side up? And how does our life work? How does it go for us when we try to do things the world's way? I mean, how does that work out for us? We don't find ourselves right side up. We find ourselves very much upside down. And as people who claim to be the citizens of his kingdom, which if you're a Christian, again, that's what you are. So as people who claim to be citizens of his kingdom, it would be wise for us to spend time talking and thinking about the kingdom way of living and doing things. Don't you agree with that? It would make sense for us to spend time pondering those things, considering what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? If that's what we are, then let's consider that. Let's think about that. Let's talk about that. What does it look like to live and work and operate 
according to the kingdom way as opposed to the human or the worldly way. And not just to talk and think about that, but to apply what it means, what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom and an ambassador of the king. What does it mean to live according to the kingdom way, and how do we apply that to our day-to-day life in this world? That's our goal. That's where we're headed. That's the point of this series, which also ties into that theme for our ministry, for every part of what we do in 2023. America's founding fathers, of course, had the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That defined their purpose. That was the driving document for what they were going to be and do and what America was going to look like. Karl Marx had the Communist Manifesto. In the Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew 5-7, through Jesus declared what his kingdom is all about. And what it really means to be a citizen of that kingdom. And the introduction of the sermon contains what is probably the most well-known section of the entire sermon of Matthew 5 through 7. That's the Beatitudes. You've heard that phrase. You've seen it in your Bible. You've probably memorized some, if not all. The Beatitudes, very well known, often referred to. Here's what I want to tell you about the Beatitudes, which kind of summarizes them and gives you the purpose and the point of them. It's, I think, easy to remember when you look at it this way. The Beatitudes show us the attitudes that should be seen in every Christian. The Beatitudes show us the attitudes that should be seen in every Christian. This list that Jesus provides in the Beatitudes, it's not something that's meant for just the extremely devoted Christian. It's not meant for the professional Christian, the pastors and the the missionaries and the evangelists and that sort of thing. It's meant for every Christian. And it shows us the attitudes and the mindset and the heart and the characteristics that should be true. That should define every single Christian, every citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom way. And Beatitudes in our English Bible comes from the Latin word for blessed, since each of these verses start with the word blessed. But the original Greek word that Jesus uses at the beginning of each of these statements is makarios, And on the surface, it it means happy. But it goes deeper, much, much deeper than the typical American dream kind of happiness that we so often have and that we so often pursue. Like the classic song by the band Boston, it's more than a feeling. Much more than a feeling. It's not a, a fleeting, emotional kind of response based on comfortable circumstances, things going our way, having what we want, when we want it. You know, that's how we often think of happiness, even subconsciously. It's, it's all about the feeling. It's all about the moment. It's about the physical and the temporal. That's not the kind of happiness that Makarios refers to and what Jesus is referring to. On the contrary, Makarios refers to a deep, abiding internal joy, real joy, lasting joy. And you know the difference between joy and happiness, right? 
Joy is an anchor. It's something you're rooted to. It's something that doesn't come and go. It's fixed. Happiness is circumstantial, by and large, for the most part. And it's certainly driven by emotions. So this is referring to a deep, abiding, internal soul-like joy. It's untouchable, and it's unaffected by all the chances and the changes of life. Because, I mean, think about it. Real life, many, many times, has all sorts of random variations, right? It's fluid. Things come and go and change in a moment. We all know that very well, and our last year was full of that. Every year is full of that. Where you start off the new year and you have all these goals and aspirations and dreams and ideas and resolutions, and it doesn't take long at all for all that to go out the window. So we're not talking here about things that come and go with the waves of life that affect and change how I feel. We're talking about something much, much deeper, something lasting, untouchable, unaffected by all those chances and changes of everyday life. So what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes then is how to be happy in the kingdom way. Don't miss that. He's talking about how to be happy, and he wants us to understand that, but according to the kingdom way, not the world's way of defining or driving happiness. The kingdom way of happiness. The kingdom way of being happy. And like everything else in his kingdom, it's upside down. It's upside down. It's counterintuitive compared to to the way we often humanly, naturally think about happiness. So with all that in mind, let's listen to the first part of what Jesus taught about how to be happy. We're going to spend the first two messages of this series talking about this. This is the first part, how to be happy. And the first part takes place, and it's coming to us by looking at Matthew 5, 1 through 6. Matthew 5, 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the ESV, and uh, that shouldn't be too far off from whatever translation that you have personally. Matthew 5, 1 through 6, and this is from the ESV. God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them Saying, And before we get into this, that tells us the audience, the listeners that Jesus has before him. He's talking to his own. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to those that are following him. He's talking to his disciples. That's an important thing to remember. He's not just talking to the general public. He's not just talking to those that would be antagonistic to him. He's talking, rather, to those that identify as followers of Jesus. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is definitely an upside-down concept, isn't it? Right away. I mean, this stands in stark contrast to the way the world works and to the way the world operates. I mean, it's not the poor of anything 
that get anything in the world's system. Certainly not the poor of spirit or the poor of mind or the poor of heart or the poor of experience that would have any hope of getting anything like a kingdom. But Jesus says, blessed, happy, makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is he talking about here? Well, Jesus, in this first statement, he is describing people that realize how spiritually bankrupt they are. This is not talking about physical or external poverty. This isn't even talking about having kind of a humble mindset. I mean, that comes later. Jesus is describing people that realize how spiritually bankrupt they are, how utterly desolate spiritually they are. It's people that admit how desperate, how totally desperate they are for Jesus and his grace. It's like he said in Luke 5, 31 and 32. He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What he was saying there is, I'm not here for people who think they're totally okay. I haven't come for people who don't feel any need for me, who don't recognize their need for me. I haven't come to help those who feel like they don't need any help. I'm here for those who know they are sick in their soul and they have no other hope beyond me. I'm here for the people who have looked all sorts of other directions for purpose and for hope and for remedy for their situation, and they found none, and they are looking to me, and they know that I'm what they need. That's who I'm here for. Those who know they are spiritually sick, and I've come to make them well. That's what he said there. And that's really what he's talking about here in this statement. The spiritually bankrupt. The totally desperate for the remedy the cure, the rescue, the restoration that only Jesus can provide. He's the only one that can do it. A great example of what is being taught here and really said and focused on here in this first beatitude, a great example is the illustration that Jesus gave in Luke 18, 10 through 14. He said this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. So he wasn't really praying. He was proclaiming how good he was. He was using the prayer as a means of bragging. He was praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, Hapatui. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Then notice this contrast in this illustration, this parable. But the tax collector, which was the bottom of the barrel for every Jewish person, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one, this one, went down to his house justified 
declared righteous, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, as startling as that story and that illustration would have been to his listeners, and as startling as even that statement in this beatitude, the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as startling as all that would be, it was absolutely the reality of how things work in the kingdom. And it's what Jesus wanted to get across. It's what he wanted people to see as being the case, as, as being true and as being what they needed to, to accept and adopt and apply into their own lives. And my friends, we today, right now, you and me here in 2023, we need to remember this too. We need to remember that we are all beggars before God. We need to remember that we contribute nothing to our salvation except our need of it. Do you agree with that? That apart from Christ, outside of Him, and His intervention, His work, we are helpless and hopeless. We are desolate and totally depraved. Apart from Him. We need to remember that. We have nothing to bring to the table. The table was already set for us. Then, verse 4, as we move on, it's directly tied to what Jesus taught in this first verse, in verse 3. It's directly tied to that. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this is a very, very, very popular beatitude. It's on all sorts of cards, sympathy cards especially. It's, it's quoted, especially around funerals and those kinds of situations. But here's the thing. Jesus is not, not talking about physical mourning and emotional grief connected to the death of a loved one. He's not talking about the comfort given to a loved one that is grieving and mourning the loss of their loved one. That's not what he's referring to. Now certainly, don't misunderstand though, God is not callous toward that kind of pain. It is not that we aren't promised comfort in those kind of situations. That's not the case at all. Certainly we are. I don't want you to misunderstand that. God is close to the brokenhearted. God is a God of all comfort, including comforting those who have lost a loved one, as many of you have over the last year or two or three. And I get it. My heart still breaks, especially around the holidays, when we have that empty chair at our table with my mother and my dad's wife, kid's grandmother. It's fresh, it's real, it's painful. And we draw tremendous comfort from the God of all comfort in that situation. And I hope you do as well. But we need to understand that's not what is being referred to here. 
Remember I said verse 4 is directly tied to the truth of verse 3 about the poor in spirit and what that really means. It's about people who identify and recognize, who admit, acknowledge their own personal spiritual lostness, their depravity, their spiritual bankruptcy, and look to Jesus, the only one who can make them right. It's tied to that. So what he's referring to here in verse 4 is a deep and intense spiritual grief over our sin. That's the mourning he's referring to. Remember, verse 3, he's referring to that deep awareness of our spiritual depravity, our spiritual bankruptcy. Verse 4, it's connected to that. Those that realize they are spiritually bankrupt also realize how insidious, how terrible, how vast their sinful state is, and it causes them to mourn over it. That's another thing about the spiritually poor. Those who have that spiritual poverty. The reason why they are able to get the kingdom of heaven is because they look to the only one who can give it to them, but it's also because they moan over, they mourn over, they grieve over, they despise their own sinfulness. It's not okay with them. It's not that they are sitting there saying, well, I guess that's just the way I am and it's going to have to just be okay. This is me. That's not what they're saying. They are torn up about their own sin. It's what David demonstrated when he finally acknowledged his sin with Bathsheba. And it's what he expressed and recorded in Psalm 51.17. You probably know this verse. You'll recognize it. He said this in his prayer of, of brokenness and repentance toward God. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. You see, it's a natural result of the meaning of verse 3. And just as Jesus promised a good result... For those that recognize their spiritual poverty in that verse, in verse 3, here too in verse 4, in this beatitude, is a promised good outcome. It's that godly grief is honored by God. Godly grief over sin, over our unrighteousness, it's honored by God. It's recognized by God. James tells us that you draw near to God in repentance, and He will draw near to you. It's what will happen. Jesus will respond to a heart that is grieving and mourning over its sinful state and condition, and that looks to Him in repentance. He will honor and recognize a spirit that recognizes its own poverty, its own lostness. Both of these things together That's what causes those good results. That's what brings the kingdom of heaven to you. That's what brings the comfort to your mourning, your spiritual mourning. You see, when we have godly grief over our sin, not only does God honor it, but here's the really good news. Everybody hear this. He doesn't leave us there to wallow in it. Godly grief is what he wants for us to have. We do need to be broken hearted and grieving over our sin and repent, turn from that. And as we do that, God doesn't just leave us there to wallow in our misery and in our mourning over our sin and in our grief. God doesn't keep 
guilt over our heads. That's what the enemy does. Remember that. God does not use guilt to just continually make us feel horrible about ourselves and about our sin. No, He wants us to grieve over our sin so that it will lead us to repentance to turn away from that sin. And as we do that, He lifts us up and He renews and restores us. Isn't that great? So I have to ask you this question about this. When is the last time that you actually mourned over your sin? When's the last time that happened? When is the last time you were absolutely just consumed with grief over your sin against God? It's what should mark every Christian. This beatitude should be our experience daily. That as we sin, it's not just, well, that's too bad. Guess I messed up again. What's for dinner? shouldn't be like that. It should wreck us. It should absolutely break our heart. But we shouldn't stay there. We shouldn't stay there. Godly grief is something that we should have. It's what God honors. But it should lead us to repentance. And as it leads us to repentance, then we experience renewal. That's how that works. Let's keep going. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is another verse, beatitude, that is often misunderstood. That word meek or, or meekness, it's, it's so often misunderstood. It's looked at the wrong way. So here's what I want to do to clarify. Meekness is not the same as weakness. Meekness is not the same as weakness. Our society, our culture, here's another way this is upside down and contrary to what we often are told and we see on display in the world's way of looking at things. The world generally will look at meekness as weakness. It's being weak. It's letting people walk all over you. It's letting people take advantage of you. You can't do that. Don't be meek. You'll get totally bowled over. That's not what is true, though. Meekness is not the same as weakness. Here's what meekness is. And it's certainly the way Jesus would define this, the way he would describe it and what he would be looking for. Meekness is having a controlled strength. Meekness is having a controlled strength, and it's using that controlled strength to serve others. It's not using it to control others with strength. I'm going to say that again, because there's a lot there. Meekness is having a controlled strength and using it to serve others, not controlling others with strength. That's what meekness is. That's what it's about. That's what Jesus displayed, and that's what he's looking for in citizens of his kingdom. It's what Jesus told his disciples... In John 20, 25-28, he said this, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. 
That's the world system. That's the way it works. And it still works that way today. That's how it operates. Those with power use their power and abuse it. Might makes right. That's the philosophy that pervades society. Always has been, always will be like that. But, look at this, but among you it will be different, or it must be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our pattern. It's Jesus. Jesus, who is the eternal Word of the Father. Jesus, who is the Creator of the entire universe. He didn't come and demand to be served, although He could have. It was His right to do so. Now, Philippians 2 tells us instead, He emptied Himself of all of His divine privileges, all of His rights. He laid them aside. And He took on to Himself humanity, the form of a slave. The sovereign creator and king of all the universe, the one who came to be the Savior, became a slave. And he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. That's what Jesus did. See, he displayed and pictured what true meekness is all about. And he's calling his followers to do the same. And he says that if you will adopt that meek posture, that attitude, that mindset, that heart, you will be blessed. You will be permanently, securely, deeply happy. It's not coming from exercising strength to your advantage and manipulating other people. It's by serving other people with the strength you have. Then verse 6. Verse 6 tells us this, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the way those that hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied, don't miss this, it's by Jesus Himself and by Jesus alone. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Only Jesus can satisfy our deepest, most profound hunger and thirst. And that's what the promise is here. When Jesus says they shall be satisfied, he's really saying they're going to be satisfied by coming to me, by looking to me. I'm their satisfaction. I'm the only satisfaction. He made that very clear by what he said in John 6.35, which is also part of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get there much further down in our series. But he says this in John 6.35, so clear, and it just connects completely with what this beatitude is saying. Jesus said, I am, pointing to his divinity, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a lot of hungry people in humanity. 
lot of hungry people in our world. A lot of thirsty people. And I'm not talking about physical hunger and physical thirst. I mean, that's true as well. I'm talking about the hunger deep within our souls, the thirst in our spirit that no matter what we look to and try cannot quench, cannot satisfy, cannot fill or fulfill. Our world is full of people that are empty and hungry and spiritually starving. And they're just never satisfied because they're looking to everything but the source of satisfaction. And many of you have been there. You know what that's like before you came to Christ. You know how empty, how no matter what you tried, no matter what was promised, no matter what was put in front of you or given to you, it didn't work. It didn't fill up that emptiness inside of you. You kept getting thirsty. It was like you were only drinking from the ocean, salt water. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Only Jesus can fill the longing, the hunger that we have deep within us. Only He can satisfy and quench that thirst that no one else or nothing else can. This promise that those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness that have that as their goal, that have an appetite for righteousness that the world and sin and self can't ever fill, this promise that there is satisfaction for that, if they look to the righteous one, Jesus, that promise, that was the intended picture of the feeding of the 5,000. You know that story well, the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody was amazed at what was done there and how much was left over. That miracle, like all of Jesus' miracles, they weren't just about the physical blessing or the physical provision. They were always about something deeper. It was Jesus using a physical reality, a physical need, and meeting that need, but using that as a picture of what He ultimately came to be and to do. And the feeding of the 5,000 was certainly an intended picture of what is being said here in this beatitude, that Jesus alone can provide real, lasting nourishment, that He alone can satisfy, He alone can quench that thirst. It was the point, the whole point, of the intentional encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. Don't you love that story? It's one of my favorite in all the Bible. This woman, so broken, so empty, longing for purpose and meaning and real life, longing for fulfillment that she couldn't find in all the men that she looked for to give that to her. She was the subject of ridicule. She didn't even have the fulfillment that comes from community. I mean, she was empty and lost and desperate. And she came to that well, and what did she find? What did she come away with? She came away with not a jug full of water. The text tells us she left her jug there. Didn't even need it anymore. She was full in a way that no one else could ever do. No one else ever did. She was changed forever and she went and told other people about it and brought them to the one that did that for her. She found a quenching of her thirst. And my friends, it's what Jesus wants us to hear and to recognize. He wants us to believe it. He wants us to remember it. He wants us to apply it, that only He can satisfy. He wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
us today in 2023. He wants that to be what defines and drives us. He wants that to be our ultimate appetite, our ultimate hunger, our ultimate thirst for righteousness, for the things of the kingdom above any other thing. And the promise is as we pursue that, as we pursue Him, the righteous one, we will be satisfied. Don't you want that for your life, for your year, for your family? I mean, real, lasting satisfaction, no matter what comes and goes in and out of your life in 2023, no matter what crumbles around you, don't you want that source of real satisfaction? It's found in Jesus alone. So here's the point of all of this that we've talked about today. Each of these beatitudes that we've looked at, the ones we'll look at next week, the point of all of this is this. Only the upside-down kingdom of Jesus can turn things right-side-up in our world. That's the only thing that's going to do it. It's not trying harder, doing more. It's not more money. It's not more programs. It's not the right person in office politically. It's not any of those things. This is it. Only the upside-down kingdom of Jesus can turn things right-side-up in our world. And guess what? You and me were meant to be a part of that happening because we're citizens of that kingdom, first and foremost, and we are called to be ambassadors of the king of that kingdom. We're called to go out there in the world that is not our home, the world that we're occupying, and we're meant to draw attention to the king of our kingdom that we're citizens of. That should be our goal. In 2023, and every single year until the Lord calls us home or comes for us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it, the relevance of it, how practical it is. I thank you for the power of it. Father, as we have started this new series and this new year, I pray that what we've looked at this morning would stay with us. I pray that it would resonate in our minds and our hearts as we go out in this first week of this new year. That we would go out and that we would remember that apart from Christ, we are all spiritual beggars. That there will never be a time when we don't have need of Jesus. Help us to recognize and remember our spiritual poverty. Help us by your Spirit to grieve in our spirit over sin. Help us to see our sin the way you do. To see it as serious as you do. To the point that you sent your Son to take its penalty, its curse, to pay the price for our sin and to give us remedy from it, rescue from it. Help us to remember that because of what Jesus did, we don't have to stay under the weight of sin. We can resist it and help us to choose to. But when we still fall, when we still sin, oh, Father, by Your Spirit, help us to grieve over it, to be broken over it, so that we will repent from it and then experience that comfort, that healing, that restoration that You promise. Father, I pray that we would be marked by these things. I pray that 
we would be people that are meek in our attitudes, in our hearts, in the way we treat others, that we would use the strength that you give us not to serve our own purposes, but to serve others as Jesus did. And, oh, Father, help us to truly, every day, to hunger and to thirst, not for temporal things, not the things of this world, not selfish things, but to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then to experience the satisfaction that you promise for those that do. May all of this mark us, define us, drive us, and be true of us. And as we are out in the world but not of the world, may they ask us what is different about us and may we point them to the King of the kingdom that we are citizens of. I pray all of this by the power of your Spirit, in accordance with your will, in the name of Jesus. Amen.